as you guys have opened Esther 9, I want to thank our band, our worship team, who serves us every week, Daniel and um, really it's Daniel and it's the Rico family, who's leading and serving and caring for us uh, every week, putting their gifts and talents to use to help us uh, engage and walk into the presence of God together. And so um, it is not just a bunch of Christians who play music. They are people who genuinely want to lead us in worship, who want to celebrate and enjoy and glorify God together. So thank you, everybody who plays uh, in the worship band. Um, all right, so Esther 9, I am excited for this morning. In general, if you are a guest with us this morning, whether online or in person, uh, in general here at CF, we like to preach through books of the Bible. We take a book and just kind of walk through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We do that for a couple of reasons. One, all of the Bible is living and active. It is the Word of God, and all of it is for all of us. Whether or not the passage directly applies to where you are in life at that moment, all of the Bible is for all of us, and we can all learn from it. It is useful for prop profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, says Paul. Also, by going through books of the Bible in the way that we do, it forces us as a community to deal with some of the trickier and harder passages. It doesn't let us hide from topics and themes and concepts that might be difficult to work through um, if we were just doing only topical series, and I don't have a problem with doing topical, we do it on occasion. But if that's all we did, uh, it'd be a lot easier to just find the easy passages uh, and not deal with any of the controversial or any of the hard things that are in the Bible. Um, today we have one of those passages. Uh, I'll give a little disclaimer now. This is going to be PG-13 kind of sermon um, as we talk about some kind of hard, very um, hard things, hard topics. And so, But I'm excited to walk through it together because um, we don't have to be scared of the Bible. This is good. This is God revealing himself to us. Uh, it shouldn't scare us. It shouldn't push us away. And so I'm excited to jump in with you guys this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in and get to work. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that, God, that you gave us today. Lord, we have seen time and time again, especially in this last year, um, you have reminded us as we have studied your word that you don't waste days, you don't waste time. So you gave us today for a reason. Each one of us has a specific reason and purpose for why you got us up this morning, why you got us gathered together in person and online, why you're giving us the rest of today or as much as we get to have. Lord, help us to engage with today. Help us to be present. God, as we open your word this morning, as we come to hear from you, to engage with you, Lord, we ask that you would help us to remove the distractions, remove the things that would cause us to ignore, to not listen, to not hear the truth that you have for us. God, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe. Give us minds to comprehend. Give us hands and feet to respond to the word that you have for us this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Esther 9, starting in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to lay hands on those who, thought, who sought them harm. 
and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Let's stop there for now. I want you guys to keep your finger there. Um, I want to give us and jump back and give a brief history lesson. Um, you don't have to jump along with me. You guys can keep, stay in Esther. But in Genesis, we have Abraham. Yeah, we're going that far back. We have Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to bless you and your descendants, and you and your descendants will be a blessing to others. Though Abraham has no kids at the time, eventually his wife uh, gives birth to a son named Isaac. Isaac eventually grows up and marries a woman named Rebekah. In Genesis 25, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This birth roughly happens, generally speaking, about 2000 B.C. Keep that number just floating in the back of your heads. Roughly 2000 B.C. God tells Rebekah, there are two nations in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. From the jump, from the get-go, Jacob and Esau, and subsequently all of their descendants would be at odds, even at war with one another. This family would be broken at times. Jacob and Esau both grow up. Jacob grows up, and he ends up buying his brother's birthright for a bowl of soup, which I totally get. I love a good bowl of soup. And then later on, he tricks his father Isaac into blessing Jacob, the blessing and inheritance that belonged to Esau as Isaac was getting ready to die. Again, conflict between these two brothers from the beginning. Jacob eventually will get a name change from God. He will get his name changed to the name Israel. And Jacob will have many sons, 12 in fact, and they and their wives and their descendants will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, yes, I know, we, Esther to Genesis to Matthew, I promise we'll come back to Esther. If you go to Matthew and you go to chapter 1, it's that first page that everybody skips over, the genealogy. In that genealogy, what you will see is that the line that eventually produces Jesus Christ goes through this family line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, one of his sons, Judah, eventually David, King David, and many, many others over the course of hundreds of years ultimately end with Jesus Christ being born. This is what's known as the line of promise. The promise that God made that he would send one who would go to war with sin and Satan himself. One, a Messiah. One who would be set apart. One who would restore and redeem and renew all things. This line of promise goes through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. But what about Esau? 
right? If you think of it as a road, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, and then you have these two boys. You have the road that goes down Esau's line and the road that goes down Jacob's line. Well, if you go down Jacob's line, eventually you get to Jesus. What happens if you take the road less traveled? Now, Esau has four wives, two of which were daughters of his half-uncle, which is a whole other sermon unto itself. But even those four wives were not enough for Esau because he also has a concubine named Timna, and from her a son is born named Amalek. And we come to know Amalek and his descendants, the Amalekites, in Exodus 17. We went into this about six weeks ago uh, when we were looking at Esther 3, so I'm going to briefly go through this again, though, just to refresh us. As Moses is leading God's people out of slavery, the slavery in Egypt they had been in for over 400 years, it is the Amalekite people who are the very first to attack and present in opposition to the Israelites on their journey to the promised land. We said earlier, uh, Genesis 25 was roughly 2000 BC. This battle in Exodus 17 is roughly 1400 BC. Old Testament, you count down. New Testament, you count up. This battle happens between the Amalekites and the Israelites. Moses puts his hands up, and when they stay there, the battle is, goes well for the Israelites. And with the help of a couple of big rocks, the Israelites end up defeating the Amalekites. After that battle in Exodus 17, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekites attacked Israel. And so God declares war on the Amalekites. They attacked his people and in essence attacked him. So there will be conflict. And this gets repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. God does not let this go. You fast forward to 1 Samuel 15 which is roughly 1,000 B.C., so we're about 400 years after that battle. God tells King Saul, he says, Saul, I remember what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they were coming out of slavery, when they were coming out of Egypt. I want you to go and wipe them out. And he says, quote, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul, go and wipe them out, blot them out. So they go to battle, and instead of obeying the command of God as he should, Saul allows the king and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good, he would not utterly destroy them. He disobeys God, and so because of this, God will remove Saul from being king. And because of this, the Amalekites will continue to flourish. They will continue to have offspring. They will continue to attack the Israelites, and they will even take credit for killing Saul later on. God told Rebekah, there are two nations in your womb, two peoples from which, from within that will be divided. The war continues throughout history, which brings us here to Esther 9. Haman, our antagonist throughout the book of Esther, was a descendant of the Amalekites. He issues an edict signed and sealed by the king of Persia, which cannot be negated, declaring open season for any of the enemies of the Jews to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. That word annihilate is eradicate. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is Adar. In response to this edict, eventually Haman meets his judgment and is hung, and Mordecai and Esther the queen write a new edict. 
this one declaring that on the 13th day of the 12th month, the Jewish people were allowed to destroy, to kill, to annihilate their enemies, anyone who attacked them. Now, to be clear, had they been attacked on this day, they would have fought back, right? Someone busts into your house, you're going to put up a fight. You're going to try and defend yourself. The problem is, even had they won, if they were living just under that first edict, let's say they get attacked and they fight off their enemies and they survive the attack and they kill their enemies. Great, they've broken Persian law, which is subject to death. That's why the second edict was so important. The second edict allows them to fight back and defend themselves with no further consequence. So we have this day, we have two edicts. One says anyone that wants to attack the Jewish people can do so without any penalty, and one that says the Jewish people can do and defend themselves to death against anyone who attacks them. This is government-sanctioned gang warfare. Two sides to allow to completely destroy each other, and the government basically just saying, well, let's see what happens. But it isn't quite a clear, uh, clean fight and fair fight. We see in verse 3 of chapter 9, I told you I'd come back to it, all the officials of the providence and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Because of the second edict and the rise in power of Mordecai, who has become the second in command of all of Persia, you have government officials on the side of the Jewish people with more than just moral support, but even physical support if needed. And so this battle finally takes place as we've been walking through the book of Esther. This is the climax of the book. And in verse 1, it says, The enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, but the reverse occurred. We have seen this theme play out time and time again in this book, specifically surrounding Haman and his life and his decisions and the results that come from them. We see him decide to go into the king's court, and the king asks him, what should I do with someone who pleases me, with someone who I want to honor? And he goes on about this lavish parade that they should get to have. And then the king says, great, now I want you to go to Mordecai, who is Haman's enemy, and I want you to do all of that. I want you to dress him in the finest robes and walk around the city telling everyone how great he is. Haman later on has a gallows built 75 feet tall to kill Mordecai on, and that is what he ends up finding his death at. Haman finds, makes these decisions, and the reverse occurs. The opposite occurred. The unlikely occurs. That's what our God does. This day, which was marked for evil, God used for for good. This is who our God is. He is the God who takes what you may think, what you expect, and he flips it, he challenges, he subverts, he reverses the situation for his glory. And so we get to verse 5. And it says, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased those who hated them. That is a pretty uh, succinct summary of what happens throughout this battle. The Jews struck their enemies and killed everyone who hated them. But then the author goes on and gives us a little more detail about how this actually plays out. And the detail is blood, lots and lots of blood. Let's jump in verse 6. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Pershandatha and Delphon and Aspha and Paratha and Adaliah and Aritha and Parmashta and Arisa and Aradai and Vaisatha. The ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hands on the plunder. 
That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded for this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a feasting and gladness. 500 men were killed in Susa, along with the 10 sons of Haman. And we see this note at the end of verse 10. It says, they laid no hand on the plunder. Now, if you go to chapter 8, you will see that the edict that was written regarding the Jews and how they were to respond to these attacks actually allows them to take what they wanted. And this was pretty common practice in the wars of that day. It's how nations and groups and families grew. It's how you acquired wealth. You went to war, you battled other people, and the winner took the spoils. But the Jews didn't take anything. We'll see that again, and you heard it repeated two more times. The Jews don't actually take anything. And as the battle is going on, we see King Ahasuerus in verse 11. He is impressed by what is going on. He seems impressed by how the Jewish people have responded to and decimated their enemies. When he tells the queen of the 500 killed in Susa, he asks rhetorically, what do you think the rest of the body count is throughout the rest of the land? He's so impressed, he even asks Esther, what can I do for you? What, do you? what else do you need? What else do you want? These are his people. These are his people who are killing and being killed. But again, we see this disconnected, uninvolved view of the people he is to lead and protect and watch over. Time and time again, King Oswaris has been in direct opposition, direct contrast to our King Jesus as the kind of leader and authority he is over us. Our king is the good shepherd who protects and cares for his sheep. King Oswaris doesn't care one way or the other who wins this battle. Esther makes a request in verse 13. If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. That's a strange request. That's a very strange request. First, in regards to the ten sons that are already dead. These ten sons of Haman have already been killed. Now this, hanging up your enemies on the gallows, this was a, a fairly common act at that time. It was a public deterrent. It was declaring to people, don't end up like these guys. Don't cross those who are in charge, or else this is what is waiting for you. And here it would seem to be saying, this is what happens when you go to war with God. God promised a thousand years ago he was going to wipe out the Amalekites and he didn't forget and he didn't ignore, but he fulfilled what he said he would do because God keeps his promises. Still a strange request. And the first request is even stranger. 
And it is, honestly, a very tough one to wrestle with. Because the original edict that was written by Esther herself and Mordecai said that the Jewish people could defend themselves against their enemies. This whole battle that is taking place on this 13th day of the 12th month, this is all about self-defense for the Jewish people. But what, es what Esther is asking for here is not defense. It's offense. Can we go and finish killing our enemies? Those who are against us, maybe some ran, maybe some retreated, maybe some were in hiding, we don't know. We have no explanation as to her rationale here. We also have no support nor any condemnation for her actions. And so I'm not going to tell you what to think about this request Esther makes. But I will say that throughout this book, we have seen Esther do things that we don't always like or agree with. Some out of necessity, some out of a shrewdness that she has about her. And I think this is one of those times. Because again, the Bible doesn't give us any insight into whether this was good or bad on her part. It just gives us, this is what she did. For me, personally, my gut feeling, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel many steps away from the original edict from Haman. Hey, there are enemies that I don't like in this city. I want to go kill them. Now look, you guys are smart, sensible people. You can wrestle with this text. You can debate it amongst yourselves. You come to a more solid resolution or you think I'm wrong. PastorTimCF at gmail.com. I'd love to go back and forth with you on this one. But this is all the text gives us. Either way, whether it's right and wrong in the eyes of God, either way, both of her requests are granted. And so a second day happens, and 300 men were killed in Susa, but again, no plunder was taken. We see in verse 16 that all told, 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed. But again, no plunder was taken. It's been repeated three times. The author has made a point to tell us they laid no hands on the plunder. When you're reading the Bible, repetition is important. Repetition in close proximity is very, very important. The author wants to get this into our minds, get this into our brains, that they didn't take any of the stuff. Remember what Saul got in trouble for back in 1 Samuel. He let the Amalekites live, and he kept the stuff when he was supposed to kill the Amalekites and leave the stuff. Here we are, 600 years after Saul failed to obey God, Esther and Mordecai led the Jewish people in doing what God said would happen, the blotting out of the Amalekites. Doing what Saul should have done in the first place, and we wouldn't be in this mess. Had he obeyed God way back then, there would be no Amalekites, there would be no Haman to write this edict in the first place. See, this was not about financial gain for the Jewish people. This was about a general conflict, the justice of God being carried out, and the Jewish people seeking rest and reprieve from their enemies. This is the big day that everything has been leading up to. And when it's all done, 75,000 enemies of the Jews have been killed at the hands of the Jews. What do we do with that? What do we do with the reality that 75,000 human beings, and the edict specifically included women and children, so that's why I say human beings, 75,000 humans created in the image and likeness of God were not only killed, but killed at the hands of God's people. And right after it, they celebrate. They have a feast. 
It's a celebration and a feast, Purim, which we'll talk more about next week, that continues to this day. The Feast of Purim, in part, marks the bloodshed that happened and still is celebrated. It was just celebrated at the end of February by Jewish, by Jewish communities. What do we do with this? What's the main focus of the Bible? We're told right on the first page, right in the opening words. In the beginning, God. This book is about God. It is God revealing himself to us. This book tells us of the God who created something out of nothing, and that something, us humans, rebelled against him and in turn continuously pursued our own desires, pursued rebellion against him, pursued sin. And in response to that, he continues to pursue his creation. He continues to call us back to himself, and he makes a way for us to be in right relationship once again so that we would be able to once again enter into what was supposed to be the original intended right perfect relationship with him. And so if the Bible is mainly concerned with God and focused on God and about him revealing himself to us, then even in this passage, even in this fact that 75,000 humans were killed at the hands of the Israelites, it has something to teach us about God. So what do we learn about him? We learn that God is just. The Amalekites attacked the people of God over a thousand years ago. Thus, they attacked God. And God promised he would wipe them out. Over and over, the Amalekites were at odds and in conflict and war with the people of God. And at some point, the justice of God was going to judge his enemies. And throughout history, at different points, God uses his people to do just that, to execute the justice of God. No one forced the people to attack the Jews under Haman's edict. The edict didn't say you have to go kill the Jews. No, it said if you want to, you won't be punished. It was the choice of the people to attempt this horrible act. And in choosing this sinful act and to act on their sinful urges, those who weren't already Amalekites jumped into bed with them via Haman's edict and thus brought on them the same fate that was promised the Amalekites. See, justice is relational. In the Old Testament, there are two main words that we use to talk about being just or justice. Both talk about how to treat people. One talks about treating people equitably. Equi equitably. Everyone is judged according to the facts and merits of the case, not any other outside factors. But justice is not just about punishing the wicked, but also giving to people what is due to them, treating them like people. So things such as the treatment and care for widows and orphans and immigrants falls under justice. Care for them because they are people that makes them worth being cared for. They make, that makes them worth us caring and supporting and protecting regardless of what they can do for us. So who decides what is just? Who decides what is fair? Who decides how people are to be treated? completely holy, completely righteous, completely set-apart creator and sustainer of all existence. God not only declares what justice is, but he himself is just. It is his character and nature. It flows from him. If you attack God, there will be consequences for your sin. Death. Sin equals death. 
there will be bloodshed for attacking God. Now, we don't like that idea. It makes us uncomfortable. We struggle with the concept of God judging people and God's justice being carried out because it involves punishment of rebellion. It means not everything in the world is this fuzzy gray area that we have created, but in fact, there actually is right and wrong. And no matter how much we try to manipulate that reality, that's reality. And it forces us to honestly evaluate our decisions in light of that fact that right and wrong are clearly laid out for us by God, the originator and creator and fullness of justice itself. And so we tend to have two main objective objections to God's justice and his judgment. Number one is that we struggle with it because we don't like being uncomfortable in general. Right? You got headaches, take some medicine. You got dry skin, put on, put on some lotion. You're tired, drink some caffeine. You're waiting for your burrito to go in the microwave. You don't like to sit still, scroll your Twitter. We have built a society that does its best to alleviate any discomfort immediately. It's why we really, really love Easter Sunday, and we kind of just get through Good Friday. We don't like to sit and dwell on Good Friday, but man, we will sit in Easter for as long as the day will let us. You see, some people will say, well, why all the bloodshed? Is it really needed? And that question is us trying to minimize our own discomfort. And in essence, telling God we know better than him. We don't. If we actually believe that God truly is perfect, holy, righteous, and just, then we have to submit our, our view of ju what justice is our view of what justice is and isn't is colored by the fact that we are limited and finite and we are forever wrestling with our sin nature. God doesn't have any of those limitations. He is the very definition of justice. Second reason we struggle with this idea of God's justice and judgment is that God's justice and judgment, we will say, some people will say, is contrary to the fact that God is love. They will say the God of the Old Testament is all about wrath and, just, and, and judgment. The New Testament, he's all about love and grace. Either he has, either it's two different guys or he has a major personality change. It just doesn't make sense. But these things are in opposition to one another. That's just not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in fact, it is because God is love that he can judge and that he does judge. Because a God who sees pain a God who sees hurt, a God who sees injustice in the world and refuses to act, refuses to avenge, refuses to bring justice, is not a God of love, but rather a God of indifference and neglect. And who would want to worship him? God's justice is in complete union with his love. God doesn't, but, God, but that doesn't mean that God likes to execute judgment. It does not bring that doing things like this brings him joy. And in fact, the exact opposite. In Ezekiel 33, it says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from, turn from his way and live, turn back from your evil ways. God's desire is that we would all come to know him and be saved. But the reality is, that won't happen. There will always be people who rebel who will continue with their hard hearts and will face the consequences and punishment for their sin and suffer for eternity in hell. God was just in punishing the Amalekites and the enemies of the Israelites for their attacks. Evil was punished justly and accordingly. And we see that carried out through God's justice. 
Second thing we learn about God is that he is mercy. You might read over chapter 9 again and say, Tim, where's the mercy in that? The very fact that the Israelites were allowed to defend themselves, that second edict in and of itself is mercy for his people. And on the flip side of that, how long did it take for this day to come? How long did it take for the Amalekites to face their final judgment? We said Exodus 17 was roughly 1400 B.C. Esther is about 475 B.C. It's been a thousand years. A thousand years that the Amalekites had the opportunity to turn from their ways. And what do we know about God and his character when it comes to people who ask for forgiveness? Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Isaiah 1, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Daniel 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. That's not even New Testament stuff. That doesn't even get us into like 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Exodus 34, God appears and God is having this mountaintop moment with Moses, and it says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and none of that is in conflict with his justice. Those things work together. Not only that, but he will not forget. He will not just let it go. He will follow through to always endure, ensure justice will occur. But that does not stop him from showing mercy and forgiveness either. Had they turned, had at any point the Amalekites turned and repented, had Haman at any point stopped what he was doing and turned and confessed and repented, God would have forgiven him. It's who he is. It's his character and nature. But the mercy of God allowed the Israelites in Persia at a time when they as a people were not living really in light of the laws of God. He allowed them to defend themselves and find some relief from their enemies, which they were literally surrounded by. And the mercy of God allowed a thousand years to go by to give the Amalekites every possible opportunity to turn from their wickedness and turn toward God. God is both just and merciful. And on that day in Persia, either God's people were going to die or they were going to defend themselves and be spared. It was life or death for them. And the same is true for us when it comes to Jesus at the cross. It was either life or death for us. Either Jesus goes to the cross, dies for us, and raises again, or we are stuck, condemned in our sin and rebellion, stuck in our sin and destined for hell. Thank God that God is just, that he promised to redeem and restore and renew and end sin and pain and death and hell. And the way he would end these things is for all of sin to be punished for the full and complete wrath and justice of God to be poured out on Jesus at the cross for our sins in our place. And because we know that God is just, 
We know that sin is paid for, and we know that the fear and guilt and shame that goes with our sin, those things are dealt with at Jesus' at the cross too. We don't have to live in debt to sin, wondering when we are going to taste the justice or judgment of God. Christ already experienced those things, so we don't have to. The complete and total wrath of God towards sin, complete and total justice and judgment was executed in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and it was verified and accepted in his resurrection. Thank God that God is just. And thank God that God is merciful, that his justice was carried out through Jesus and allowed us to avoid it. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. In Jesus' death, he dies the death we should have. We didn't earn that. We didn't and don't deserve that. But we are granted mercy in Jesus going to the cross in our place. Someone has to pay for those sins. Christ went to the cross to do just that. You still have a choice as to whether or not to accept that. Because for those who have not placed their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are choosing to pay for your own sins with what you think your goodness is going to get you, and it's not going to get you enough. The standard is perfection. You aren't perfect. And so if you stand before God on that day in your own actions, in your own acts, what is waiting for you is eternity in hell. Or you can accept the free gift of grace being offered to you today, right now, by putting your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Either way, someone is paying for those sins. That's God's justice. Christ going to the cross on our behalf, dying his death that we deserve to die, suffering in our place, that's God's mercy. And the fact that God continues to give his creation more and more time to repent, to turn to him, to call on him for salvation, that's God's mercy. It's understandable that we look around at this world as we are still in the midst of a pandemic, a year plus in, and we see this world, and it's broken, and it's hard, and we pray, and we say, God, just send Jesus. Let's just get this new heaven and earth going. Let's get this new creation, Lord. It's time. We're tired. Let's just have the second coming happen. But realize that every day that God holds off sending Jesus is another day for God to call more and more people to himself to save more and more people, for more and more people to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and King. I got family and friends who are not believers, and I know you do too. I want them to have whatever time they need to come to know Jesus. God showed you mercy. If you are a Christian, he showed you mercy by withholding the second coming of Christ so that you would have time to get saved. And every day he is offering that same mercy to others. Jesus' death and resurrection provides for us rest. God is a God who provides rest. He is just, he is merciful, and he provides rest, which is what Purim celebrates, which we're going to talk about next week. The Israelites battled, and then they rested. The celebration that they have afterwards remembers and celebrates the rest that they got afterwards. And they could rest because they had peace from their enemies. They had victory over their enemies. The problem had been dealt with, evil had been dealt with, and so they could rest. We can rest as Christians in the peace and victory of Christ's death and resurrection. Because at the cross, he declared it is finished. There is power and hope and grace and new life and rest to be found in a relationship with Jesus. It is through and by the justice and mercy of God that we are given the peace 
and rest of God so that we might celebrate and declare the goodness of God for whatever days he might mercifully give to us in, to be the lights of the world that he has called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we thank you that you would send your son to die for us. God, Good Friday is messy and ugly and hard, but it is good, and it shows your justice, it shows your mercy, it shows your love, it shows your compassion and your righteousness. You wouldn't just let sin go, you wouldn't just ignore it, but you dealt with it. That you are fair, you are honest, that you are true, that you are pure. All of these things are shown to us. You have not changed, you will not change. We don't have to worry about who we're coming to because we know you have revealed yourself to us. We know your character and we know that there's still more of you to know. Even of your justice, even of your mercy, even of your love, there is still more and more to mine from those places. Oh Lord, give us a heart to know you more, to know even those parts of you that make us uncomfortable. To know those parts of you, your sovereignty, your complete and your complete kingly reign, your justice, your judgment, even those parts of you, Lord, help us to know you deeper and deeper still. To see that you are not against us, but you are for us, that you have made us in your image and likeness. For many, you have called us to be your sons and daughters. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who hasn't put their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins, that today is that day that the Holy Spirit would do a work in their hearts to call them to yourself so that they do not have to stand under your judgment, but they will stand in the grace of the free gift of grace and new life found in faith in Christ. Lord, you gave us today. You gave us this morning to fill us up, to remind us of your justice, to remind us of your mercy, to remind us that you are a God who provides rest for his people. God, let us not squander that, let us not ignore that, but let us enjoy that and embrace that as we go out to be the lights of the world you have made us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.